Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Alex Canizares. He is a senior counsel at Perkins Coy and a lecturer at the George Washington University School of Law. Alex, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. So you spent several years as a trial attorney in the Department of Justice before your current job. So can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, when does justice get involved in the Department of Defense procurement matters and how did you get involved in that area? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think DOJ can become involved in defense procurement matters in a number of ways. Uh, you know, one of them is obviously if there's a lawsuit that's filed that DOJ has responsibility for. You know, I was in a section called the National Court Section in the Civil Division. And so basically the section I worked in handled litigation against the United States. So these would be lawsuits you know, filed against the, the government, although they would be implicating individual agencies. And so very frequently, um, that office, and I worked on you know, very, a number of cases involving DOD agencies. That's one area where you know, procurement disputes that are in, in litigation would involve you know, basically DOD and DOJ to be working together. There are other types of civil litigation that DOJ handles that require you know, coordinating with DOD components and agencies that are in different federal courts. The False Claims Act types of enforcement matters are handled by the civil fraud section and U.S. attorney's offices around the country. And those very often do involve DOD components if, to the extent that DOD programs are, have any equities or interests in, in a case. So DOJ works with DOD quite a bit on sort of active litigation. I mean, that was certainly my experience that, you know, if, we're, if it's an investigative posture that you know, you're going to be working closely with the agency. You know, for me, it was a lot of it was working on things like document discovery and you know, preparing witnesses for hearings and trials and things like that. And there's certainly at the policy level, I suspect that there's uh, there is some coordination that you could point to on um, DOD procurement issues that may have sort of a law enforcement component. Certainly criminal, you know, criminal work as well is, is going to be an area where there's a procurement fraud, things like that. DOJ and DOD are going to be you know, working together. Do you see an uptick in, in the worry or, or the concerns about procurement fraud, especially with COVID-19 and the surge in procurements that have been going on to respond to that? Definitely. I think that's definitely been borne out, actually, with some of the recent announcements that DOJ has put out. I mean, for one, the attorney general actually issued uh, you know, a statement about making COVID-19 related crimes a, a priority for the department. And then there, were, um, there was a directive from the deputy attorney general to all the U.S. attorney's offices to basically you know, highlight COVID-19 related criminal activity as a priority. And I think just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some um, press releases about some criminal uh, enforcement on different issues related to COVID-19. You know, scams, people purporting to offer cures for COVID on, on, on a website, 
you know, ranging from that to there's also been one related to the Paycheck Protection Program loans, um, somebody allegedly, you know, committing fraud on that. So there, I think there's definitely a really uh, higher attention to this, and it is going to be playing out for some time. There's probably going to be investigations underway that play out and turn into some some sort of litigation. Uh, False Claims Act activity is one. And, you know, you can look back at what happened after the financial crisis in 2008. It, in some ways, it's different. I mean, there are many ways where this current crisis is, is really different from the financial crisis. But I think in terms of the response and the enforcement response that we saw in the wake of that, and that really has lasted for a long time. The uh, special inspector general that investigated the TARP program is, you know, still basically has active matters. And so, you know, these these are going to be playing out for some time. And I think, you know, we've been already seeing just the early signs of this being a a major area. Yeah, I want to loop back to some COVID-19 issues. But first, I want to go through a few emerging trends in procurement issues and how they're related to law. And so I want to start with uh, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. That's been something that's been getting a huge amount of attention in the Department of Defense, a new cybersecurity framework. And supposedly, at the end of this year, you're going to start seeing uh, requests for proposals where companies will be required to have this kind of certification for cybersecurity in order to bid. And there's a lot of other legal issues at hand. And I, I know you've been dealing a little bit with this. So can you just introduce us to what's where are the emerging trends there? Yes, definitely. I mean, you're right that this is a, an area that has really been front and center for government contractors, particularly defense contractors. The, the CMMC is a DOD-specific program. There has been discussion about the extent to which it might be used as a model for civilian agencies. But at the moment, it is being rolled out. I think there is an expectation that CMMC is probably going to be set back a little bit. Uh, I think some of the public statements that I've heard from, you know, Katie Arrington, who is the DOD chief information security officer, who's kind of spearheading this, is that, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has some impact on the training of auditors and that the timeline for that. Separately, there's a, a rulemaking that's underway to amend the DFARS to basically, you know, implement CMMC in effect through regulation. And, and I think there's still some question about what the shape of that regulation is going to look like. But I think that the timeline for that may be pushed back somewhat, and that may drive the timeline on some of these path, their so-called pathfinder contracts that they're using. So just stepping back, I mean, basically CMMC is, is, is as you suggested, it's a framework for assessing cybersecurity protection among the defense industrial base. And the real driver behind it from a policy perspective from you know, for DOD is that this is all about protecting the supply chain and, and a recognition that there's a real vulnerability in particularly, you know, we're not talking about the primes, but you know, deep down in the supply chain and the and the subcontractors that are possessing sensitive information of some kind are vulnerable to threats. You know, they're vulnerable to malicious cyber threats and intrusions. And so the idea is that, you know, we're going to set up this kind of DOD-wide system that everybody needs to comply with in order to do business with DOD. There is now some indication that maybe commercial off-the-shelf contractors could be um, exempt 
and that's just based on what I've seen on the, uh, the FAQs on the DOD website. But I think that the expectation is this: this is a huge program. It's going to be costly. It's going to have a lot of compliance obligations. It really re- raises a lot of questions, some of which you know DOD has, has answered and some of which they haven't. And I think that the idea, originally, they were trying to move really fast and get, the, get this out. And I think even before COVID-19, there was a recognition that, okay, we're going to have to do, as Ellen Lord said, crawl, walk, run on this program, right? We're going to have to take it a little bit one step at a time. So they, they released version 1.0 in January of this year. The expectation is it's going to be rolled out over a five-year timeline. They're going to start out with these, these so-called Pathfinder contracts a way to kind of set the template for, for the rest. But basically, you know, the, the program envisions that you've got five levels of maturity models, the, the sort of levels one through five, getting progressively more, you know, robust and sophisticated, and that every single contract is going to have a CMMC level in it. And so that, that really does, it is a really significant program. I think there's going to be a lot of still details to be shaken out, including the cost. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the CMMC is that it has an advisory board that's kind of external to government. And then this board will certify, you know, some of the auditors that will go around and make sure that the companies, there's 300,000 companies supposedly that will need at some point the CMMC certification. Are there any conflict of interest problems that you're thinking of that might arise there? Or, or what do you think about that, that general structure? Yeah, I think that structure does raise a lot of interesting questions. I mean, there are legal questions and just kind of practical questions about how this is going to work. But, you know, basically, you've got a number of different entities involved in this program. DOD itself is basically setting the standard, right? So they've released this model that everybody needs to meet. Again, COTS contractors maybe be an exception there. But this accreditation body is a non-governmental organization. And the idea is that they're going to manage this whole accreditation process. So the accreditation process is going to be carried out on the ground by these auditors. They're third-party assessment organizations. Those organizations themselves are not government entities. And they, the accreditation body is now rolling out sort of a training program to get these auditors trained. So one of the questions that I think is really fascinating to think about is, You've got all these government, non-governmental actors who are doing both the certification level work and determining these really consequential determinations. If you're a government contractor, you know, you, if you don't get certified at the level that you need, that could be a, a game-changing, calamitous impact for a contractor. So you know, having these third-party entities do this is, presents sort of an unusual, risky scenario, in part because... You know, as a government contracts lawyer, especially as one of you know, litigated cases involving the Contract Disputes Act, I think about my frame of reference in government contracts disputes as things like the Contract Disputes Act or, you know, a bid protest involving a procurement action of some kind. Those statutes and those ways of providing for a meaningful you know, judicial review and an appeal process that we're accustomed to, if you're, you know, familiar with submitting a certified claim to a contracting officer as a way of you know, bringing a dispute to an agency. That sort of framework doesn't readily apply here. 
because you're basically dealing with non-governmental entities. And also, it's arguably not really a procurement. The certification decisions are being done sort of in a different context. So that's definitely one aspect that I think is really interesting to think about. You mentioned also the, um, you know, the conflicts of interest question. And there, I know that, you know, there's been some mention made to that. I haven't seen any sort of rules addressing that. I think it's probably reflected somewhere in, I would, I would assume, in this memorandum of understanding that um, has not been made public, but it's between the uh, DOD and the accreditation body. But the idea there is, you know, you basically don't want the same companies that are out there doing the auditing, you don't want them to be essentially performing, a, you know, evaluation of themselves. And that seems pretty straightforward in terms of the conflicts of interest. But th- there are some wrinkles there. I mean, you've, you've got the, the, these companies that are going to be doing these, these evaluations are this sort of emerging industry. And we don't really know much about who, who's going to be doing this work or how they're going to be trained and, how, and what sort of standards they're going to be using is definitely an open question. Yeah, it seems like, you know, you have a company there, they have existing work, they have big recompetes coming up, and let's just say CMMC comes on one of those recompete contracts, and now this company is basically leveraged on winning this contract. They expect it, they've been working on this proposal for months, they've they've been sinking a lot of uh, their capabilities into it, and then what happens if an auditor, you know, actually denies them and says, no, you're not certified? Would that contractor have recourse to sue the auditor or the accreditation board, or do you, you know how that might shake out? No, that is definitely an open but very important question, and one that I've been, you know, thinking about. I don't think that we've seen anything specific to set that out. What we do know is that the accreditation body is responsible for a lot of things, including, you know, the training of the auditors. But one of the things that they're also responsible for is dispute resolution. So I would expect at some point the accreditation body is going to come out with some some sort of framework for this about an appeal process, for example, so that if a contractor you know is denied the certification level that it wants, it's going to have some ability to bring that up, if you will, and get a review. And there's there's a couple you know on the accreditation body website. There's a couple definitions of terms, including dispute that you can see, and they sort of give an inkling as to maybe what the accreditation body might have in mind. But beyond that, we haven't really seen any clear you know, guidance about how that's gonna happen. And, I, and like I said, I think there's also a real question about beyond, you know, if you're just bringing a dispute before the accreditation body, do you have any judicial review in a court? And if so, where? And, and I think that that's a really open you know, question and, and raises some jurisdictional questions and things like that. And I suspect we'll, we'll start to see those issues crop up. But, you know, contractors, this is a really high stakes area. I mean, as you pointed out, maybe a contractor has a huge contract for them and maybe it goes up for recompete and there's a CMMC level that's on there. Their incentive to kind of get to get that certification and to get it corrected is very, very high, right? So, so I think that that sort of raises the the likelihood of there being some sort of disputes in this whole program. Yeah, so bid protests is is one of the things that seems to be a little bit unclear in how that will be resolved, but bid protests just in general, not not related to CMMC, but in the wider defense acquisition process, has a really big effect on government and contractor incentives um, during that procurement process. So can you talk a little bit more um, just about protests themselves. Uh, what are the emerging trends there? 
whether that's related to CMMC or, or otherwise. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that the bid protest system really does affect the incentives that contractors have and the sort of considerations that contractors take into account when they're when they're bidding on a, on a contract, right? They're, they're always mindful of who's the competition, you know, what, what, are, what is the likelihood that uh, one of my competitors is going to protest if I win the award? What is the likelihood, what are the bases that I might have if I'm, you know, find that I'm, I'm a disappointed bidder on a, on a contract? So these are things that literally, you know, pervade the whole system. And there are also things that contractors think about even when they're not bidding, right? I mean, the, the issue of uh, organizational conflicts of interest is one that contractors worry about. Are they are they setting themselves up for a vulnerability, a risk down the road that somebody would be able to protest one of their contracts and say that they've got some sort of unfair uh, you know, competition, unfair bias because of an OCI? And actually, for that matter, agencies think about bid protests too in the way that they manage their procurements. And I certainly saw this firsthand at DOJ that you know agencies think about because of the automatic stay that you get when you file a bid protest, at least before the GAO, under the Competition and Contracting Act, there's an automatic stay of performance. So the agency is essentially frozen in its tracks. And that's a really big deal if you think about from the government's perspective, they're making an award of a, a contract and then they're going to be stuck and unable to move forward until the protest is resolved. So agencies will think about that. They'll try to basically reduce the risk of a protest to the extent they can. And there are ways you can do that. You can, you know, if you're through the debriefing process, for example, try to be candid with the, the losing or you know, disappointed bidders and explain to them why they, they didn't qualify. And, and sometimes that process is helpful, you know, to just kind of relieve any basis for, for a protest. But in terms of new developments, I mean, I think you're right on CMMC. I, I don't think there are some you know, potential areas that we could see on cybersecurity and bid protests uh, related to CMMC. We're still far away from seeing that, though, because it's going to take a while for uh, you know, those programs to be rolled out. I mean, just in terms of bid protests now being impacted by COVID-19, I think that, you know, basically GAO has continued to function. The Court of Federal Claims is continuing to function. It's fortunately, I guess you could say GAO is, you know, they moved onto an electronic docket for their cases a couple of years ago. They very rarely hold hearings, in-person hearings. So, you know, just on that basis alone, it's, you're not talking about some of the problems that, for example, district courts are struggling with now about having in-person hearings or trials being delayed or disrupted by the COVID crisis. The Court of Federal Claims is moving to more you know, telephonic hearings in their cases. So by and large, the bid protest system is continuing to function. Every year, the GAO puts out numbers on their total numbers of cases. And you know we'll see what those numbers look like later in the year, if they're affected at all. But you know we're talking still a huge number of cases. I think in FY 2019, GAO received more than 2,000 bid protests. So, you know, that this is a high volume area. It's probably will continue to be. A few other areas just in terms of, you know, bid protest issues that I, I think are interesting and, and, and ones to keep an eye on. One is I think, you know, agencies now in light of the COVID crisis have been given uh, directive by OMB to consider and take advantage of using emergency measures to procure goods and services as needed to combat the crisis. And there's been 
focused on things like in FAR Part 18. There's a number of measures that are existing remedies in the FAR that agencies can use to basically expedite procurements. So it's certainly plausible and, and reasonable to assume that, you know, there, we might see more bid protests that kind of flow from agencies using sole source procurements or, you know, taking advantage of some of these emergency procedures. I don't know to what extent that will actually play out, but I think it's something interesting that anytime there's a change in the way agencies actually procure, there's a likelihood that it'll somehow affect how, you know, people protest. Another area that's, I think, very interesting to watch relates to bid protests concerning other transactions. So, you know, OTs is a really hot area, as, as I'm sure you know, and Ellen Lord has really focused on the role of OTs for DOD in the COVID-19 crisis, so for in the medical, sort of healthcare area. But there's a real question in the cases that have been emerging in the last year or so about where whether and where you can protest an award of an OT. And you bring a bid protest that challenges the award of an OT. And the answer to that question seems to be no. I mean, there's, a, there's some asterisks on that. And I don't think it's fully resolved in the Court of Federal Claims. But the, the GAO has basically said, we will review whether an agency has properly decided to use an OT you know, versus using a traditional procurement vehicle. But once you get into the details of evaluating offerors on an OT and things like that, the GAO is going to stay away from that. So that's that's an area that I think is probably still going to be evolving and is really an interesting area to watch because OTs are really an increasingly important tool for you know the government and for for industry because it's not a procurement contract. And so, you know, it's it's really it's meant to be fast, it's meant to be expedited. Those would be a couple of things I'd keep an eye out for. Yeah, I hear you on the other transactions. They've been increasing over the past few years. I think it's over $5 billion in the last year. And, you know, I, I was actually just talking about this today, whether you could or couldn't have a bid protest on an OT. And I remember there was the, the GAO sustained Oracle's protest of another transaction. But I think that gets to what you were saying it was whether it was proper for them to use the OT or a procurement contract, because I think in that case, the agency didn't specify up front that there would be a follow-on production type award. And for one reason or another, like that's just one of the rules, like to use it, you have to specify it up front at the beginning that you'll use the production follow-on. But you're saying for the most part, OTs are not subject to the same bid protests. Yes. I mean, basically, the same thing that makes OT so attractive is now, you know, potentially a downside in the, in the sense that what makes OT so attractive, at least from industry standpoint, or I suppose from the government as well, is they are not subject to the FAR. They're not subject to the DFARs. They're not subject to uh, all those procurement statutes, you know, SICA among them, that are so specific and in some ways very onerous. And so that's great. It frees up agencies to use, you know, OTs on a faster, streamlined basis. The wrinkle in that is when you get into the question of the court's jurisdiction or the GAO's jurisdiction, the GAO, its function in bid protests is to review procurement decisions. And the, and the court also has, under the Tucker Act, its own statute that defines its jurisdiction that refers to whether it, it can review agency action that is 
quote, in connection with a procurement. And there was a case last year brought by SpaceX focused on that, what that means in the context of an OT. Is an OT for a prototype OT, is that in connection with a procurement? And, and the SpaceX decision is really an interesting read because it ultimately said no, at least in the context of that particular OT, that it was not in connection with a procurement as that under the Tucker Act. And so therefore, the court said, no, we can't review this. We don't have jurisdiction. If that's the rule, that definitely, I think, interesting to think about, well, what's the impact for, for OTs? You know, this is going to be something that is you know, less attractive if you're a company and, and you're, you're getting an OT and you, or maybe you're bidding on one and you, you want to know that you can, you can protest it. Um, you know, the protests, like we started talking about, is, is the, bid, the availability of judicial review of an agency award on a, on a procurement decision is a big a consideration that companies take into account. If that's taken off the table for OTs, I think it's a really, you know, it's an important consideration. Yeah, definitely. The the bid protest seems to be one of those big deals that makes people in the government, especially contract officers, kind of be more risk averse. And they, they want to do that documentation. I think you said earlier, a lot of your time was actually going through documentation. I remember in one case, I was part of a group collecting some reports and like one business-based report. We only get basically submissions from less than half, like actually less than half of the companies are compliant. Usually they're not, but apparently like you know, the team was scouring every document. And if, the, and if this one large contractor didn't turn it in, then they would have overturned this massive, you know, competed prototype award. So it seems like, okay, on when you're competing a contract, you know, you really have to look out for the bid protest, make sure you got all of your ducks in a row, and that slows down some of the process. And then you have the risk, of course, of the bid protest, which can restart the clock. And we've seen that with the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, the JEDI contract. But then if the government wants to go towards a negotiated contract, even if it's kind of in a competitive environment, it now has these new rules that says basically it needs to go through pricing determination because it no longer has the market signal, again, through the Competition and Contracting Act back in 1984. You can kind of get around cost or pricing data if you have competition. But if you don't have competition going to negotiations, now you have to go uh, the, the contractors have to justify what they're bidding through some kind of insight into their cost or pricing information. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about, and you wrote a really great report, and we'll put a link up to that on, on emerging trends in cost or pricing data, but can you just uh, tell us what's going on there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the article that you referenced was focused on some recent developments in this area. And I think what I tried to do is kind of trace it back to the origins of TINA. So, you know, basically the Truthful Cost or Pricing Data Act, as it's now known, people still refer to it as TINA, the Truth and Negotiations Act, allows the government in certain circumstances to obtain cost or pricing data from contractors, right? So they, the government, it, this is part of the government's role of determining the costs are fair and reasonable. So as you alluded to, you know, if you're doing a FAR Part 15 negotiated procurement and the government is evaluating, you know, multiple offerors that have different prices, they need to make that determination about cost being fair and reasonable. It's required under the FAR. So as part of that sort of inquiry on cost reasonableness, the government, the idea is that the government's or the contractor's own pricing data 
would be you know an, an important part of being able to conduct that analysis. And so, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's really an interesting area, an example of where government contracts is so different from commercial contracting, right? The notion that a company would turn over its internal pricing documents to its counterparty, you know, in a commercial transaction is kind of hard to wrap your mind around, I think, for for most companies. But, you know, basically in the article I wrote, I, I went back, I looked at the legislative history of TINA to try to help to, you know, kind of shed light on what some of the recent trends were. And so TINA was signed into law in 1962 by President Kennedy. And it was really, you know, the Legislation itself was a response to these reports of basically overcharging uh, on defense contracts. So the GAO had done a number of audits and identified that there was, uh, you know, rampant overcharging. And the perception was that basically that we needed legislation to give the government better, you know, greater access to this pricing data. That there was basically some sort of imbalance that needed to be remedied. You know, the, this one of the legislators in the discussion of the bill commented that contractors should not be able to, you know, pull the wool over the eyes of government negotiators, you know, by withholding this information. Now, that perception is probably, you know, different now, but I think you, you do see in some ways a similar tension more recently about there's a sort of trade-off between giving the government more access to a company's sensitive internal cost and pricing information and encouraging commercial contractors to do more business with DOD. I think that that is the tension that has sort of come to the fore in, in the last year. And that was what I tried to focus on in this article, that there were a couple of things that happened. I mean, one was you had this DOD IG report that was alleging overcharging by a defense contractor. And then that resulted in a sort of a, a blowback where there was members of Congress who were advocating legislation. You had a real push on DOD to basically implement policy changes that would make it easier for the government to get cost or pricing data. And the OIG's kind of argument was, look, you've got this existing statute, you've got the, the FAR and the DFARS re uh, regulations, but they don't really have any teeth to force contractors to turn over this data when the contracting officer asks for it. And so, um, you know, the, their sort of lament was there, there really needs to be greater restrictions to kind of make contractors comply with these, the point of the statute and the regulations. Others take a completely different view. And as I pointed out in my article, the Section 809 panel, which it now seems like a long time ago, but they were very much kind of front and center in, in thinking through the future of DOD acquisition. And they came out with a report, or I think it was the third volume of the report last January. And that basically the Section 809 panel said, DOD is relying too much on cost or pricing data. And they say, you know, contracting officers are too willing to just ask for this data and they're not thinking through other ways of getting the information they need to do a cost reasonableness or price reasonableness analysis. And so their main argument is, look, this is a barrier to entry for companies. You're deterring companies from doing business with, with DOD because these, at least there is a perception among industry that cost or pricing data requirements are, are really burdensome and onerous and they sort of turning, turning people away. So I, I think you really, there's an interesting tension there that was sort of highlighted by the way these two developments over the last year. Ultimately, DOD did implement some policy changes, you know, just internally that would kind of help facilitate 
contracting officers to get this information. They're, they're now using some market research uh, to kind of identify some of the cost or pricing issues that come about. Nothing too sweeping, though. And in the 2020 NDAA, there are some provisions that are, make, are intended to at least make it easier for contracting officers to, to obtain cost or pricing data. So I, I think this is definitely an area that continues to kind of generate consternation if you're on the industry side, certainly. And, and this sort of debate is going to be continue to probably unfold. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if we'll continue to see calls for some you know, legislation to make further changes. Yeah, I think you bring up like the fundamental tension in the cost or pricing data process because it is kind of difficult and many times to have a government compliant accounting system where you're really targeting and you're assigning costs to all manner of objects and then you're kind of segmenting out the government costs and you can assign them clearly back to government work. Whereas like a lot of commercial companies that sales and uh, general administrative expenses they're kind of just in a big pool and it's not really clear how those should be assigned. I've heard, I'm, I, I don't have 100% accuracy on whether this is true, but like the DOD inspector general, when they were looking at some of these cases of overcharging of the government by contractors, they'll actually go in and then they won't look at the sales and GNA or R&D costs and, and spread those costs onto it. So it makes it look like profits very high, but that might not be, that just might be an artifact of the accounting system. It seems like there's this whole accounting compliance barrier to entry and that whittles down the number of contractors able to actually do the work. So now government's kind of relying on cost or pricing data to make its pricing determinations, but then it's also blocking out a lot of the market competition, which will ultimately, hopefully lower the overall costs by increasing competition, increasing innovation. You know, just for me, when I think about it, it's like, okay, the value of a product is not necessarily in the tangible labor requirements and how much labor, how much materials, how much raw materials went into it. It's more like, you know, what is the value of the intangible assets being created, the knowledge work that went into it? And it's hard to price that just based on looking at, you know, how much raw material and what were the prices of those raw materials going into something. And so this really seems to be driving out the the most innovative of firms. So government would be fine paying, you know, 5% more each year so long as it's backed by actual cost data, whereas it's less, you know, willing to dip itself in. I guess some of the problem is when you open up these market forces, then you you go back into this very structured competitive contract bid process, which itself is a barrier to entry. So, I mean, that was a long convoluted thing that I just said there, but do you have any kind of opinion on this border between if you could lower barriers to entry, would that not, you know, create market price signals more organically rather than just having to report back to what was the cost of pricing data? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's an easy solution here. I mean, I think you have just very ably described a, a real sort of tension and problem in the in the system that we have. And I think it's it's not limited to cost or pricing data. I mean, there are other aspects of doing business with the government that innovative, technologically driven companies, there's a perception that if if they do business with DOD in particular, that those are going to be really onerous. They're going to require, like you say, maybe a cost accounting system, or there's compliance risks, there's the price reduction clause if you're a you know commercial contractor. So those are definitely problems. And I think, you know, Ellen Lord in particular has really 
been very forceful in speaking out about the goal of attracting innovation and, and promoting innovation. And I think, you know, the, we talked about OTs as a sort of way to do that. So I think, you know, one of the questions that I haven't seen fully explored sort of empirically with, it, with data is, is the actual impact cost or pricing data in particular on deterring, I don't know how you measure it really, but to what extent is it actually having an impact, a negative impact in turning companies away? I think that that's a helpful data point though. And I think that certainly the Section 809 panel reported that and, and they had spoken to people in connection with that report, but that is a forceful point of view that we really, you know, just from a policy standpoint, if we want to attract innovation and, and promote uh, smaller companies and keep them from moving away from the market, this is an area that really does require some real thought. CSIS has put out some reports on how small businesses in the overall industrial base has been shrinking over time. But, you know, there's tons of forces, as you just said, it's not just cost of pricing data, right? There's tons of forces pushing on that. When I just think of cost of pricing data, it just feels like you're making companies an administrative extension of the bureaucracy in government, right? Because it's almost like a subsidiary and you're, you're trying to manage, okay, where did everything go? And then that also comes back to CMMC because a lot of the costs of complying with CMMC, they're supposed to be covered by the government, supposing you already have a contract and then you separately identify it. And then it's still not clear exactly how that will be reimbursed, whether through an overhead or through another contract line item number on the contract. I mean, I I think we could probably um, go on this topic for all day, but I wanted to move on to something that you've been uh, talking about that's pretty interesting with respect back to COVID and the CARES Act. So small businesses has been seeking loans through the Small Business Administration to try to stay afloat. And the government's been doing a lot to move cash to the companies. Progress payments have been increased for small and large companies. And then there's also the Section 3610, which allows the government to pay contractors even if they're not able to work. Bruce Jetty showed that only approximately 40 out of several thousand defense industries or plants are closed, but that doesn't mean they're not operating at a much lower tempo. But with respect to the the loans issue, you've written a a little bit about this. Can you just tell us what are some of those issues facing small businesses? Sure. Yeah. So the the CARES Act is, I mean, as you know, it's a $2 trillion relief bill. So it covers a lot of ground. And you've touched on a couple of the ones that are specific to government contractors. The Paycheck Protection Program loans has been an area that, that I and others in my firm have been looking at quite closely. So basically that is under Section 1102 of the Act. It is a program that was basically intended to give immediate relief to small businesses to help with payroll and other expenses you know, in response to COVID-19. And so basically, you know, the loans are guaranteed by the government and have to be used for certain purposes, payroll, employee benefits, rent, other things like that. And so what's generated a huge amount of consternation and concern is there's a couple of areas that have really created problems. One is just the sheer volume here. So you know, it's sort of amplified by you've got a huge number of companies that are interested in these loans, a lot of need. The need is far greater than the demand is greater than the supply. I'll put it that way, you know, because there are a lot of small businesses that are truly hurting right now. And so Congress initially put out $350 billion in loans. That money was allocated within about 14 days. 
Congress provided additional funding. And based on a report that just came out earlier this week from SBA, they have basically approved about 4.4 million loans under this program. And that's wow. more than $511 billion. And these, these loans are going all over the country to recipients everywhere. And the average loan, according to SBA, is $116,000. So, you know, you asked about the challenges for small businesses. I think there's a, there's a couple of things at play here. I mean, one has to do with there are some real just regulatory complexities in this program, and the rules have been kind of constantly evolving. They've had a number of interim final rules that SBA has put out. There's been a number of um, frequently asked questions that they, they've been um, adding to over time. Two areas that I and others have been really focusing on are, one is just who is, who is eligible. So the statute says that businesses with 500 or fewer employees are eligible, as well as those that, are, that qualify as a small business concern under the SBA's regulations. So, you know, people who operate in the small business government contracting world know what that, you know, at least refers to. But people, it's a very highly complex question in, in some cases as to what is a small business concern, because um, SBA will include not only the size of the company when they're, they're figuring out, you know, the number of employees, but they'll also look at all the employees of a company's affiliates. So when this program, the PPP program started out, there were a lot of questions about, okay, am I small or not? And do, you, do I have affiliates or not? There continues to be concern that you, know, you have a, a company that would otherwise be qualified, but maybe they've got venture capital or private equity funds invested that um, might be deemed to have some sort of control under the SBA's test for affiliation. It all turns on whether or not there's control. So if those, are those companies are deemed affiliated with each other, the company that applied for the loan may not be eligible anymore. Another issue that, that really has tripped up a number of people and caused a lot of concern is a certification in the loan application that requires borrowers to basically certify that the economic uncertainty created by COVID-19 makes the loan, quote unquote, necessary support their ongoing business operation. That standard and you know has not been specifically defined. Um, and there's been some recent guidance that tries to give some greater clarity to it. But this has created a lot of concern because a number of companies sort of they took out the loan, they made the certification, and then SBA issued some guidance, I think on April 23rd, that basically warned companies that in order to make that necessary certification in good faith, that SBA would consider whether the, the company has access to liquidity or do they have access to capital markets, suggesting that perhaps they didn't need the loan if they really had access to liquidity. So that created a lot of questions. SBA has now come out and, and created sort of a safe harbor on May 13th. They issued another FAQ. And so this safe harbor basically distinguishes between loans that are below $2 million and those above $2 million. Um, SBA is going to review the ones above $2 million. If you're below $2 million, SBA will just treat your certification to be in good faith. If you're above $2 million, SBA is going to review those. And if they determine that the certification was inadequate, the borrower can repay the loan. 
and and SBA is not going to impose any enforcement, you know, administrative enforcement or referrals. So where we are now, and I think there's still further, you know, phases of this program because right now companies are now getting toward the end of this eight-week period. You're supposed to use the loans are supposed to be used over an eight-week period. We're now getting to the end of that period for many companies. And that's where they need to go back and say, okay, now SBA, you need to forgive my loan. And here, you know, I meet all of these conditions for forgiveness. And so that's another, you know, trouble spot potentially, you know, for for companies where they have to submit another set of certifications and, and requirements. So just again, thinking about compliance and really, I think thinking about the enforcement and false claims act issues that come out of this, even with these safe harbors, I think we're going to see some enforcement activity. There's already been, I think, as I mentioned earlier, a criminal case related to this program. But when you have companies that are, A, receiving a lot of money, and B, they many of them have really no experience with dealing with federal loans or, or the SBA, that creates a kind of combination that can be problematic. Just listening to you speak there, it just reminds me a little bit of means testing people who are on welfare and it creates this whole kind of bureaucracy and something of an ill will between the, the, the various parties. I just want to give you some stats. I, I just saw that the SBA has spent over $600 million just on IT and support services demand the call lines for COVID-19. So that's just its internal expenditure through contracts just to support COVID-19. So there's definitely a lot a lot going on there. Um, so we're coming close to the end here. I wanted to quickly ask you, you had a little line about a procurement collusion strike force. I had never heard of that. Should that be on people's radar? What is that? Yeah, I think it, it, it is worth keeping an eye on. We haven't really seen much coming from it yet, but I think we will. But basically, this arose out of uh, sort of a, a joint task force, if you will, between the antitrust division at DOJ and um, you know U.S. attorney's offices. So the, the idea is that it's, it's going to be focused on procurement fraud, so bid rigging um, and you know collusive conduct in procurement. I think there is a real impetus to kind of go after that type of um, activity. You know, I think that they are investigating these kinds of cases. One area that I think is interesting to think about and watch are teaming agreements. So, you know, as you know, teaming agreements are pretty common in in government procurement, and you know, companies will team together to bid on a on a program or a contract opportunity. But you know, there's a sensitivity to not engaging in some sort of collusive behavior, and that's what the DOJ is kind of focusing on is is a situation where they're, um, you know, kind of colluding to depress competition, right, in a way that's anti-competitive, in a criminal way. I mean, these are, we're really talking violation of uh, criminal antitrust laws and, um, and also, you know, other, other potential statutes. But I think what, what we might see, too, is they may be investigating these types of cases, and it may create other types of False Claims Act on the civil side, uh, enforcement matters. So for, certainly for companies, that not necessarily large companies, but smaller companies too that work in the government space. Um, this is something to keep an eye on. Um, and I think that there were a number of large uh, cases that DOJ announced it had settled related to uh, under the antitrust sort of procurement framework 
this was before the task force, I think, was actually rolled out, involving fuel in Asia and sort of and, and some contracts there. Um, so that kind of sensitized people to that a little bit. But it, it is certainly something that I think we'll see more of down the road. Yeah, that was, was that the, the Fat Leonard scandal? No, not related to that. That That is a different one. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. So that, there's, more, there's lots of fuel scandals out there. Major right? issue. <laughs> so do you have any uh, last thoughts or topics you'd like to address uh, before we close out? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I think we're obviously in a really a real time of uncertainty. And so I think it's, you've mentioned a number of things in the CARES Act in particular that contractors can can get help with Section 3610 of the CARES Act and things like that. But I think the real area area for for people to sort of think about is, you know, what's the long-term impact of this, of the current crisis going to be on government acquisition you know, and, and industry? And, you know, we've touched on a couple of things in our conversation, but how do you attract innovation to government procurement? Um, you know, I think we're in a real point where we want to make sure that we're creating those opportunities. I think that the, you know, the, the good thing about government contracts as an industry is that it really can survive and, and um, you know, these sorts of economic disruptions. And, and uh, you know, I think I'm optimistic it will, but I, I think that there's there's no question that aerospace and defense industry is taking a hit. And I think it's just going to be interesting to see if there's going to be further legislation or other things to just help defense contractors get through, you know, get through this period. And so I think there's been just a lot of attention to it, but I think I'm really interested to see what are the long-term effects of this and, and how is it going to be sort of shape the policy of the government generally on, on procurement. Yeah, over the last probably five years, it seems like we've really taken a swing back in the deregulation, commercial kinds of um, initiatives. And then I'm I'm wondering again, yeah, in a couple of years, are we going to look back and say COVID was kind of like the turning point where we go back onto another pendulum swing? You know, we might have some procurement scandals. We might have, you know, some small businesses that weren't able to get loans or otherwise that kind of exit the market are, are these concerns you know, going to be another pivot point. I think that's definitely something to watch for. Definitely. I agree. Alex Canizares, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.